Have you ever wondered what it's like to perform an autopsy? Ever wanted to know how accurate your favorite crime drama is? If you're brave enough, join join us Inside the the Morgue. back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts, Jess and Alice, and today we're analyzing NCIS and seeing how accurate this show really is, given that it's been on the air for about 19 years now. That's so long. Right? It's probably one of the most longest-running shows. It's probably, like, top five. That's almost as old as my sister. We're watching Season 9, Episode 6, titled Thirst. So NCIS investigates all major criminal offenses and crimes punishable under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. The team specializes in crime scene examination and the investigation of murders of U.S. Navy and Marine Corps personnel. This episode opens with a trucker driving his 18-wheeler when all of a sudden this man comes out of nowhere and walks right across the highway. The driver tries to slow down, but inevitably ends up hitting this man. The man, though, is practically unharmed and just appears to be very intoxicated. He stands up for a second before quickly collapsing, and we see water gurgling out of his mouth. At the office, the team, including Anthony Dinozo. Ziva David and Timmy McGee are making their way in. Donald Mallard, a.k.a. Ducky the Medical Examiner, walks in with coffee to save the day. Dinozo notices that Ducky seems pretty chipper, and it must be because he has a new lady friend that he's been seeing, who is also a doctor. He says that he has a date at her place tonight. The team then arrives at the truck scene, starting off strong with a green flag. Although we haven't mentioned this before on other episodes, maybe because we didn't actually see them in scenes, but each team member has their own scene investigation bag, which is something our investigators always bring with them to every scene. There is some history of the creation of the scene investigation bag here. Agatha Christie was an English author best known for her 66 detective novels and short story collections published during the 1920s and 30s, and she was also a volunteer aide of the Red Cross during the First World War. Her book titled The Mysterious Affair at Styles was published in 1920 and it included what we now refer to as a CSI kit. In the book, one of her characters carries a crime scene investigation bag with him to a scene. In her novel, the kit included evidence test tubes and envelopes, and she stated that the character had a specific apparatus to hold everything in. Now, at the time this book was written and published, crime scene examiner kits did not exist in the traditional sense and were not being used at actual crime scenes yet. The crime scene kit was created in 1924 by pathologist Sir Bernard Spilsbury, who put together a, quote, murder bag. He recommended it as standard equipment for all investigators at scenes. It's unsure if he was inspired by what Christie wrote or if Christie was just so ahead of her time in her writing. In the traditional scene bags that our investigators use, they contain gloves, evidence tubes, envelopes, flashlights, rulers, other PPE like shoe covers, and a camera. And I know I learned a lot about this from Carla Valentine's book, The Science of Murder, The Forensics of Agatha Christie. And I know Jess and I have both bought this book recently and have been really loving it. It's honestly one of my favorite books so far. It's so interesting. Carla Valentine has a ton of experience in forensics with years of assisting on autopsies, and we just love supporting another autopsy autopsy or a pathologist technician. It's a lot of fun. I recommend everybody read it. Now, I'm not sure if Ducky would really be going to the scene or not. I don't know the ins and outs of how NCIS go about what personnel goes to scenes, but he is present at this one most likely because it is a suspicious death and 
he was probably requested to attend. And we have another green flag because Dinozo is taking scene photos. Crime scene photography or forensic photography is the art of producing an accurate representation of an accident or crime scene. The photos document the appearance and location of the victim, any shell casings, footprints, bloodstain patterns, or other types of physical evidence. The ultimate goal of the photography is to represent the crime scene to use as evidence in a court of law. He photographs the tread marks on the street and the position of the 18-wheeler before reaching the body. He proceeds to photograph the body as a whole, including close-up photos of the water dripping out of the mouth. The team learns that the victim, named Jason Sims, was a naval reservist. He was a lieutenant, 44 years old, and from the Fairfax area. Witnesses said he was swerving all over the road, clearly drunk, and he pulled off to the shoulder. This accident occurred a little over three hours ago. Denuso photographs the victim's broken watch as well. The watch reads 4.19 a.m. The truck hits Sims' wrist, breaking the watch. Now, I think this would probably be a red flag because, as we've stated before in previous episode, Emmys and forensic experts cannot determine an exact time of death. They can only give a range. But you can also really prove that the watch was broken because of the truck. Like, maybe he just had a broken watch. Maybe the watch was slow or fast. I don't know. If they were going to use this time, they would more likely use it as a time of the accident or maybe his pronounced time of death, which is different from the exact time of death. His cell phone is nowhere to be found, so the team can only assume that he was trying to drive to a call box that was just down the road. On the other wrist, there is adhesive residue that Dinozo photographs as well, so it appears that someone had previously bound Sim's arms together. The victim is transported to the morgue and an autopsy is underway. Ducky and Dr. Jimmy Palmer, his assistant slash technician, are performing the autopsy. We see the victim's scalp is reflected and then we see a bone saw in action cutting the skull in order to remove the calvarium for a brain examination. So we have another green flag here because this is exactly how we go about doing a head examination at autopsy. I was really surprised at how accurate this was in the show. Right? There are three types of autopsy examinations. A full autopsy where the body is eviscerated meaning that the organs are taken out. So, a little fun fact, viscera is another term for internal organs, hence the evisceration. And then the brain is removed, and that's a head-only examination where only the head is open to observe the brain. And an external exam where the body is not cut, and it's more of like a physical exam, like if you were to go to a doctor's office. This body at the scene is getting a full autopsy, which includes a head exam. The bone saw that they are using is actually the same exact Mopec bone saw that we have in the morgue. So shout out to Mopec. If you want to sponsor us, hit us up. Also, you know how much we love to see this. Ducky is in full-on PPE with a gown, hair covering, gloves, and a face shield. Face shields are especially important in the morgue because when you use a bone saw, it can kick up a lot of, quote, bone dust as well as a lot of just fluids or blood, which you do not want on your face or eyes. Ducky explains to Leroy Jethro Gibbs, the commander of the NCIS team, that Sims's dura is oddly loose for a man of his musculature. Your dura or your dura mater is a layer of connective tissue that makes up the meninges of your brain and is the outermost layer of the three meninges that surround and protect your brain and your spinal cord. Abby Shuto, the chief forensic scientist, comes in and says that the victim's blood alcohol level was only a 0.05. So for reference, the legal limit to get a DUI is a 0.08. So he legally was not intoxicated. But if the man had been diabetic, that could also explain why he seemed drunk. Because if his blood sugar levels were out of whack. Makes sense. If his blood sugar was out of whack, he could have been acting drunk. But I think she tested his blood sugar and it was normal. Yeah, she tested his blood sugar, but that came back normal. I know that their morgue has a tox lab and that's where she works. But ours, we don't have a lab within the morgue itself, we send it out to a third-party lab to get info back. So I don't know how 
accurate it is and how fast you would have gotten like these levels back. But if this was our case, we would probably have just done like a glucose and ketones dipstick test and tested the vitreous fluid. And Abby probably did a urine test to determine the BAC level, but we don't have the capabilities to do that. So we would have to wait for like full tox come back. So Ducky weighs the brain in a scale that looks exactly like the one that we have in our morgue, so this also gets a green flag, because I was very surprised at how accurate this whole autopsy scene was. Right? I was pleasantly surprised. Organ weights are very important when trying to determine causes of death. However, the brain that they used in this scene was very clean. There was no blood at all, and it didn't look like the right texture for a brain, if that makes sense. (laughs) It looked very smooth. Yeah, it looked like almost rubbery. Yeah. It looked smooth and rubbery. It kind of reminded me of like a stress ball type texture. And I've also never weighed an organ and not gotten blood on my gloves or the scale. Yeah. And theirs was completely clean of blood. Again, these TV shows we said in the Brooklyn Nine-Nine. They just really hate showing us the gore. They don't show gore or they're just better at autopsies than I am because I get covered in blood. The brain is very large and very heavy for a man of his size. So we also get a glimpse at the brain weight, and it weighs in at 1,960 grams. And for another reference, an average brain weight for a male is approximately 1,400 grams, and a female's brain weight is similar but tends to be off about 100 to 150 less of that of males. Ducky says that Sims's cause of death is water intoxication. So this explains the texture of the brain because there is an excess accumulation in the extracellular spaces, and the fact that his dura was loose was probably because of the water intoxication, so that causes your brain to swell, and the brain cells have very little room to swell and expand inside the skull, so they don't have anywhere to go, so they probably went behind the dura, and that made it loose. But I also thought this part was funny because Ducky calls Gibbs over to see what he's talking about, and Gibbs just stands back and he's like, nah, I'm good. And that's how a lot of detectives that come in the morgue to see autopsies, they always leave whenever we do gross, gory stuff and we like try to call them over to explain. They're like, no, 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 I'm good. Ducky explains that brain cells can't keep up with large volumes of water consumed over a short period of time. They lose their ability to absorb. And because of this, he could have seemed intoxicated like the witness stated. The man was basically drowning in his own skin. The lieutenant served in the first Gulf War and was a naval reservist since 2002. He was divorced, had two kids, and currently owns a mailbox franchise. According to his employees, Sims left work at around 6.30 last night after having an argument with his ex-wife over the phone. The team tracks the phone records and they find out that there were two calls to his ex, exactly 15 minutes apart. And those were the last calls that he made. There was no unusual activity on his credit cards. And given the duct tape and the cause of death, Ziva asks if it's possible that Sims was waterboarded. Ducky found that there was close to four gallons of water poured down his throat. So the team's next step in their investigation is to figure out where the man was driving from on the highway. The car had no navigation system, but Dinozo found an old police report involving Sims and a gun shop employee. The police reported the fight between the two last month and there were no charges filed. Gibbs tells the team to find the gun shop owner for an interview. At the interview, the shop owner doesn't seem too upset that Sims is dead. He says that it is a shock, but now he's never going to see his money. This is what the fight was about last month. Sims owed this man $500 for a mailbox he was keeping at his place, and the shop owner was talking about taking his business elsewhere, and the victim kept the security deposit, claiming the shop owner never paid his bill, which he had. The owner said the last time he saw the man was the day before they fought, and that last night he was working at the gun shop, so the man does have an alibi. 
Back at the autopsy, Ducky says that Palmer missed something on the x-ray in the area of the lamboid suture. So a suture of the skull is just a dense line of fibrous tissue that connects different bones of the skull. The lamboid suture connects the occipital bone to the parietal bone of the skull and it's located at the back of the head. This is the area right where the victim hit his head on the pavement. This part of the suture is void of asphalt particles. There's also a hematoma right above the right ear that's deeper in color, meaning that the injury happened before the hit with the truck, so they have to find out what hit him. Ducky gets a call from his date and he leaves to meet her for a few minutes before she rushes off to go back to the soup kitchen she works at. She's just a saint, man, this woman. She loves doing that charity work. She loves doing charity. Right when Ducky leaves the morgue, we get a large-scale picture of the room and Sims lying on the autopsy table. So I also have to give a red flag here because the victim's just lying on a table with only a sheet covering his lower region. And that just doesn't seem like super accurate to me, especially in a morgue during an autopsy. I know all of the bodies in our morgue, they come in body bags, and we do the autopsy right in the body bag on the table. We don't transfer them to a different table outside of the body bag. But other morgues probably have their own way of doing things like we do. But I'm just going off of personal experience, and I just, I believe the body should have been in a body bag at least. Yeah, there was no body bag. Anywhere. It's just, everything seems so clean <laughs> Everything's too and clean. clinical. Everything's too clean. In the lab, we see Palmer asking Abby's opinion on the head wound and what she thinks could have caused the injury. But Abby is keen to gossip about Dr. Mary, Ducky's love interest. Palmer says he hasn't met her yet, but she seems amazing. And then Ducky walks in on them gossiping. Ducky said that he is bringing the stomach contents that Palmer was supposed to bring for Abby to test green flag here because we do in fact collect stomach contents for toxicology testing. Gibbs comes in to ask about the head wound and Abby says it was definitely caused by blunt force trauma and not by the hit with the truck. She says that the hit in the head happened a few hours earlier with some type of cylindrical object, possibly a bat or a pipe. Aside from this wound not having asphalt particulate in it, I'm wondering if there was like any contusion that would indicate what causes injury. So there's a few different types of contusions. A coup contusion is a contusion on the brain directly below the site of impact, which can occur from a moving object hitting a stationary head, like being struck with a bat in the head. A contra-coup contusion is a contusion on the brain opposite the site of impact, which can occur when a moving head hits a stationary object. For instance, if Sims had been knocked over when he was hit by the truck and hit his head on the pavement. So it appears the victim was knocked out with a bat or a pipe of some sort, taped up, and drugged. His tox came back positive for MDMA, aka ecstasy. MDMA is a synthetic drug that acts as a stimulant or a hallucinogen. It produces an energizing effect and distorts your perception. Ecstasy is how MDMA is referred to in a tablet or a capsule form. The high levels of MDMA contributed to Sims's apparent intoxication, but since MDMA is a stimulant and not a depressant like alcohol, it would have caused more of a euphoric sensation, and that euphoria would cause an accelerated heart rate and increased body temperature, which would result in severe dehydration, which would lead to extreme thirst. So green flag here because this can actually happen with ecstasy. Ecstasy can cause hyperthermia, which is an increase in body heat and precipitation and can lead to dehydration as fluids are not being replaced. Also, a little bit about the tox tests that our morgue runs. We also use local forensics labs and run a panel called postmortem expanded blood. And this panel tests for 228 analytes, which includes testing for MDMA or MDA. This is a metabolite for MDMA. 
So they conclude that the killer did not pump Sims with nearly four gallons of water, but that Sims did it to himself because he was just so thirsty. Now, it could be possible that someone slipped him the MDMA in his drink while he was out. Ducky was having dinner with Mary and discussing the case, and Ducky says the killer had given Sims the hallucinogen and then, quote, helped him by giving him water. Mary asks how anyone can come up with that and says that her mother was a hero for, quote, helping others. Gotta be honest here, this is when I started getting a little suspicious of Mary. She seemed a little, she seemed a little too intrigued by the case, although I know people find forensics work fascinating. I am one of those people. Yeah, you definitely caught on to being more suspicious than I did. I really just thought she was being super genuine. I was, I don't know. I had to just trust for Mary. I thought she was cool at first, but I was like, she seemed too good to be true. I also, I love Ducky. No one's good enough for Ducky. The team had figured out that the first call to his ex was made from the phone at work, and the other call was made from the gun shop. The shop owner's alibi was cleared, but they accessed the shop's security system to check anyway and see Sims on camera having an interaction with the owner, handing him a box in exchange for money. So, the owner lied about the last time he had seen Sims. The security footage shows the owner pushing Sims, and they appear to be having an argument. So, the NCIS team goes to confront this gun shop owner, who was closing up the shop and exiting with the same box seen in the footage. Gibbs opens the box and finds grenades, of all things. Yeah, was not expecting that. The owner confesses that he saw the victim yesterday, but that doesn't mean that he was the one that killed him. He was using Sims to ship RKG-3 Soviet anti-tank grenades. The original fight that the two men had was about Sims wanting more money for shipping and receiving these grenades, but they were both in too deep, which is why neither man pressed charges against the other when they were fighting because they didn't want to get police involved in their altercation. The owner paid Sims $300 last night, and Sims invited the man to have a drink afterwards. But the man denied, but he knew that the victim was heading to a certain bar called the Old Horse on Route 6. The team goes to the bar to investigate further. They ask around to see if anyone remembers seeing Sims and how he was acting that night. The bartender says he had a couple beers, chatted with some ladies, and then left alone at around 10 or 10.30. When Denozo asks if the bartender knows how Sims got his hands on ecstasy, Lana, the waitress, quickly turns around and tries to leave, holding a bag of pills in her hand. Totally not shady at all. Ziva catches her, and they bring her in for interrogation, accusing her of drugging the victim and giving the victim these pills. She said she didn't give him any of her pills and that they were just for her personal use. Gibbs says that they are going to test Lana's ecstasy pills against the ones that they found in Sim's system to see if they're a match, and she clearly gets a little uneasy by this. In the lab, the ecstasy results have not come back yet, but the mud on Sims' wheel wells can tell the team more about where he went after leaving the bar. The elements in the mud are Virginia red clay mixed with various animal scat, and there are egg casings from the rusty crayfish. This is a green flag because forensic entomologists can determine where a body came from or if it was dumped somewhere else based on the insects on or around the body. If the body has an insect on it that's not native to the area that the body was found in, that can help determine if a person had been killed somewhere else and move to a second location. Abby says the crayfish are native to Midwest waters and are not indigenous to Virginia, meaning that the mud came from a very specific location. The team finds a recent infestation of rusty crayfish in the stream at Leesylvania State Park. The highway Sims was found on runs through this park and had recently had a rusty crayfish infestation. This highway is a toll road with toll plazas and cameras, so looking at the toll footage is the next step in their investigation. The crayfish were found in the northwest side of the park 
and the toll is about a mile from there. Ziva found Sims on the toll footage, and the team gears up to go to the state park to investigate more. There's a small cutscene to Palmer and Ducky in the morgue, and Palmer asks Ducky about his date with Mary. Ducky teases Palmer for prying, but Palmer says that he's just looking out for Ducky, and admits that with changes in his own personal life, he's always relied on a stable work environment with Ducky. Ducky says that change, like the seasons, can be good and is inevitable. At the park, Ziva finds an abandoned car in the river, and the car door is open and she photographs the inside of it. The team runs the plate number and finds that the car was registered to a Samuel Alcott. Near the car, they find the presumed body of Alcott, who is bloody and bound to a tree with duct tape around his wrists. I was not expecting this. Me neither. I was not expecting a serial killer twist. They just throw everything at us. Yeah. The body had been nibbled away by wildlife, and they see empty jugs of water beside the man. McGee fingerprints the man using a mobile fingerprinter, which is another green flag because I've seen this with detectives that have come into our morgue to fingerprint unidentified bodies to see if they're in the system to help us with a positive ID. And the print is run through APHIS, and the team gets a positive ID for the body, and it is Alcott. So APHIS stands for Automated Fingerprint Identification System. However, the system itself does not identify fingerprints prints, you would still need a latent print examiner to conduct a thorough analysis, comparison, and evaluation of the print. The APHIS system is just a database searching tool that searches large collections of fingerprint images and compiles a list of possible matches. It uses a mathematical algorithm that enables a fingerprint to be compared with millions of on-file prints within a matter of seconds. This may have been victim number one, and Sims was probably victim number two. Now the team thinks that they're looking for a serial killer now. Dun dun dun! <gasps> the suspense. Plot the twist. Plot twist. Alcott was a 42-year-old male, a building contractor, married with two kids, and his wife was an active-duty Marine. Alcott had the same blunt force trauma that knocked him out, same duct tape on the wrists, and same sloshing of the skin as Sims. Ducky says that Alcott had been dead for several days and that he had been dead before Sims. But the main difference is that Sims escaped to his car unlike victim number one. Alcott's wife and him had been separated for the last six months. He left her because of the distance and because he was pursuing another woman. Alcott's last credit card activity was from three nights ago at a cafe. He went to the cafe, had dinner, chatted with some women, and then left alone. Which is very similar to the story that Sims was told. Both these victims were pursuing women, they both had estranged wives, and they both had military ties somehow. Abby comes in excitedly and says that the ecstasy from the waitress was only 100 milligrams MDMA and that it was cut with baby aspirin. The ecstasy found in Sims was pure 130 milligrams MDMA with no additives. So there is no match to the drug, meaning that drug the killer used did not come from Lana. Gibbs and Ziva interviewed Lana again and tell her that she's cleared for murder, but she's still going to get charged with possession. They want her to give up the name of the dealer who sells the drugs that they're looking for. Lana says she wants a deal in exchange for the info of the dealer. So I loved this part because they laugh at her and she goes, come on, I see this on TV all the time. You cut deals. Hey, Lana, you should listen to our podcast. Everything on TV isn't always accurate. And she lets, she accidentally lets the first name of the dealer slip out, and she quickly then wants to make a second deal to give up his last name, but in reality, they don't really need that. They probably already have it. 
<laughs> Dinozo and McGee go to a rehab facility to find the dealer. The security guard tells them that the dealer has been in treatment for one week so far out of his one-month sentence, meaning he couldn't have been the one who dosed Sims a few days earlier, but he still could have been the one who supplied the drugs. Meanwhile, Ducky goes to visit Mary, and Mary says that she's been worried about Ducky all day because he wasn't answering his phone. And Ducky says he was just trying to spare her the details of his gory day. So Mary offers him some wine to relax, and he offers to help her with the baskets she is making for her charity work. Again, come on. She's too She's nice. She's too good to be true. She's too She's genuinely too good to be nice. true. No one is this good. <laughs> Ducky vents about his day, saying that there is nothing novel about what this killer is doing. He had previously credited the killer for being creative, but now he says that this killer is just like any other serial killer, diabolical and heartless. Mary seems intrigued, but also starts to get upset, and she bitterly says, You're welcome before breaking her wine glass. So Ducky obviously starts to get concerned as Mary starts to say that this, quote, sadistic bastard he is describing just wanted to help him. She says the killer wanted to show him something he hadn't seen before because Ducky had told her on their previous dates that in his career he had seen it all. She said it wasn't easy to do. And then, of course, it's revealed that she is the killer. So we were right to be suspicious earlier. Yes, we were so right. No one is this. Justice for Ducky. No one is this good and no one deserves Ducky. <laughs> He's too pure. So back at the office, the team is trying to figure out the killer's connection with the two victims. And Dinozo mentions that the two men had both had failed marriages, but the, at least they were going to counseling. The two counseling sites are part of the same outreach program, as well as the dealer's drug treatment program. So they're all connected. Gibbs goes through the toll plaza footage again, and they see that Alcott had gone through the same plaza four nights ago, just like Sims did. They were both alone, so they were either given directions on how to get there to the specific section of the park, or they followed someone there. McGee checks earlier frames of the footage, and they see Mary at the toll plaza. Mary is the one that works at the rehab center, and she also works for both marriage counseling centers. She gets around, and she wasn't she uh, she wasn't as good as everybody thought she was. Gibbs calls the autopsy room, and they find out that Ducky isn't there. So, bum, 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 everybody freaks out about Ducky, as I was also freaking out about Ducky. <laughs> Ducky is still being held by Mary, who is explaining that she used her connections at the outreach program to find victims with military background so that they would become Ducky's cases. She also said the victims, quote, deserve to die because of their troubled pasts. Listen, lady, you're not a saint either. I love the stereotypical villain monologue. It's so drawn out and so detailed. She explains everything. <laughs> they have a dramatic model. They have to monologue. <laughs> they have to. The writers need it. The writers need it. The writers need a dramatic monologue. She lured these men out of the bars they were in, which she said wasn't hard to do. All right, just bragging right there. And she believes that the men killed themselves and that she was not a killer. Ducky sees the team surrounding Mary's house. And so when he looks out the window, Mary is offended because she thinks he's just uninterested in his story and wants to leave. And so she says her dad was tricky and a sweet talker too. And Ducky realizes that Mary was killing men who reminded her of her father, who also left her mother. Ducky says that they may not have been the most kind husbands to their ex-wives, but that they still had families and it wasn't her place to be the judge, jury, and executioner. The team breaks the door into Mary's home and she runs into the bathroom. Ducky is convinced he can get her to come out peacefully, but then they hear the mirror break in the bathroom and Gibbs is forced to break down the bathroom door where they see Mary trying to cut her wrists. Back in the office, they are drinking whiskey. Very earned after that night, especially for Ducky. And Ziva says Mary is in the ER and that she will be transferred to a psychiatric unit. 
Ducky doesn't understand how he missed this, and he tells Gibbs he will never trust his judgment again. Gibbs is really sweet, trying to comfort his friend Ducky, and says that he'll trust Ducky's judgment for him. He offers to take Ducky home, but Ducky asks for a minute alone. He's looking at a picture of Mary on his computer at the Outreach website when a notification for a dating app pops up on his laptop and he sadly closes it. Poor Ducky. He just wanted to be happy. I'm going to have to keep watching to yeah, see Yeah, I if need Ducky... to keep watching to see if Ducky ends up with somebody really nice and perfect for him. <laughs> Mrs. Ducky? Or Dr. Ducky? She can be... I need to know if there's a Mrs. Ducky. All right. So you know that we always try to find a true crying case that relates to the episode that we're talking about. So what would happen if a water drinking contest went wrong? This is the case of Jennifer Strange. On Friday, January 12th, 2007, a radio station in Sacramento, California was holding a water drinking contest to win a Nintendo Wii. Strange entered the contest, which was called Hold Your Wii for a Wii, and the participant who drank the most water without using the bathroom was promised the game console, which was valued at around $250. During the match, the contestants were given two minutes to drink an eight-ounce bottle of water and then given another bottle of water to drink every 15 minutes. God. That hurts my body. I feel like I feel like my bladder is about to burst just reading that. After drinking two gallons in three hours without urinating... Strange became one of the final two participants. The final two contestants were given bigger bottles of water to drink. This I is hurting. Even. Like, oh my god. That's so much. It hurts. I feel nauseous. I can't imagine being that full of water. However, Strange began to feel ill and had to quit. She called in sick to work right after the contest and was complaining of a really bad headache. Witnesses stated that the DJ for the contest had made a comment about her distended abdomen and that it made her look pregnant. Later that day, Strange's mother found her dead in her California home. The autopsy results indicated that Strange, age 28, had died of acute water intoxication. An excess of water in the body can lead to dilution of vital fluids causing the swelling of the brain, seizures, comas, and in fatal cases, death. Drinking too much water disrupts the body's salt balance, causing brain cells to swell. John Geary, the vice president and general manager of the parent company of the radio station canceled the radio program because of this. The Sacramento County jurors found the radio station liable for the actions of its employees and the station fired 10 employees because of Strange's death. Attorneys for the radio station argued that her death was not foreseeable, but at trial, a doctor testified that when Strange was leaving the contest, she might as well have been drunk. She suffered from hyponatremia, which is when sodium in the body is too diluted, and if there was immediate medical care, she might have been able to be saved with an IV sodium drip to counteract the water. Instead, she went home, collapsed, and was found dead six hours later. The contest guidelines never made it to the radio station's legal department, and there was no medical research done on the radio station's end, and even though the participants signed a release, they were never informed of the dangers of drinking too much water. Strange was a mother of three. <laughs> that breaks my heart. It's sad anyway, no. but God. Strange was a mother of three, took part in the contest in hopes of winning the Nintendo Wii for her children. The family of Strange was awarded $16.5 million in compensation by a California jury. We got this information from a CNET article titled DJ's Axed After a Woman Dies in a Water Drinking Contest by Leslie Katz. CBS News article, Jennifer Strange's family awarded $16.5 million in Wii for Wii contest death by Sammy Saltzman and an insider-exclusive article titled Radio's Deadly Stunts, The Jennifer Strange Story, all of which will be linked in our show notes if you want to learn more. That case is just so heartbreaking. She was a mother of three. She was a mother of three, and she was trying to do it for her kids. She was trying to do something nice for her kids, and because of the radio's stupid employees who didn't do their research, 
That is so heartbreaking. But it just shows that something made up for TV, even though they don't say it's based on true events, those can events happen. can happen in yeah. real life. Well, that is the end of our episode. We tallied a total of nine green flags and two red flags. So in our opinion, NCIS does pass in terms of forensic accuracy. And I feel like this compared really nicely to our first CSI episode. Oh, yeah. Lots of green flags all around. Lots of green flags for NCIS, not so much for CSI. (laughs) If you enjoy our podcast, share it with friends, family, and coworkers. We'd love to grow our platform on here. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at InsideTheMorgPod or Twitter at InsideTheMorg and DM us with any show suggestions. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with a brand new dissection. Bye! Bye.